And so, Father, to those words today, we say a yes and an amen. Because you are Emmanuel, God, with us. And so we enter this Advent season, this season of the year that comes every year, but comes again to us anew in our hearts. Would you meet us here? We love you. We long for you. We enter this time in your word now. Bring your truth to us. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, um, <clears throat> one of the things that I discovered over the weekend, um, when you host family from out of town in your home, when you host a Thanksgiving meal with family and friends, when you celebrate your husband's birthday and you go to a state championship football game, it means you lose your voice. <laughs> so um, we're just going to trust our good father in this moment. Um, my in-laws were staying in my home last night, and they kept saying, you need to stop talking. <laughs> I said, I'm not going to take that personally. <laughs> um, we trust God's word for us this morning. Um, and this morning marks the beginning um, of the season that in the rhythm of the church year we call Advent, um, which is those four weeks of expectation, four weeks of preparation that lead us into this time of celebrating baby Jesus, who would usher in this new kingdom, this new reality, this new way of being human in the world. And so the idea of Advent might be something that is newer to you, or maybe it's something that you grew up with understanding, but every year I come to Advent and I expect new meaning to come again. But as I thought about this Sunday, um, even before Thanksgiving, reflecting on this beginning of Advent, I was surprised in me to feel this dark restlessness, this frustrated wondering as I thought about what Advent would mean this year. As I watched the news, as I scrolled through my news feed, as I look at my own neighborhood, my kids' schools, as I reflect about my interactions in my own community, I found myself longing for God to make things right. And as soon as I noticed just that brief passing thought in my mind, longing for God to make things right, I realized that Advent connects us with our longing. Advent invites us to consider, what am I longing for? It's a different kind of question than the one that gets asked a lot this season, what do you want? What's on your Christmas list? What are you asking for? But what are you longing for? It's a different kind of question, and it invites us into a different kind of response. And the truth this morning is that I could give you a really good church answer to whatever might be coming to mind for you this morning. I could tell you that the longing that you have is something that Jesus came to meet. That in this little infant boy was wrapped all of the hopes of our world and he came in flesh to answer, to all, as an answer to all of our questions, the hope for all of our doubts, the healing for all of our brokenness, and this reality, this statement is very, very true. It's so true, I banked my life on it. 
But also, friends, there is this in-between time. This moment where we are living in the already but not yet of our faith. This moment where we are still working things out and where our questions seem so close and so heavy, where the brokenness of our lives and of our world, it's not just some abstract statement out there, but those things are living in our hearts and in our home. This moment where everything is not tied together neatly with a bow, and as much as I love a good Hallmark movie, we are not living in it. Advent is a season of longing. So if you have your Bible, I want to open it, um, have you open it today to the book of Isaiah, those words that Alicia just read earlier in the Old Testament. It's Isaiah chapter 9, and we're just going to briefly take a look at those four titles that God gives to this infant baby Jesus. These names, though, that we find in this Old Testament prophecy some 700 years before the birth of Christ, and take a moment and just allow your mind to wrap around this idea. 700 years before this baby was born, these words were spoken over his life. And it was during a time where the people of Judah were in a lot of turmoil. There was a lot of unrest, and these words were spoken. The prophet Isaiah, in chapter 9, verse 6, says these words, For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, and he will be called the Prince of Peace. And this got me thinking, I wonder if, I wonder if just like this really good father, God knew the plan, right? He knew the plan. In fact, he set it all up as his son would be born in the flesh that would come to dwell among us. And I wonder if like a really proud father, God saw this moment playing out and he saw his people of Judah who were in distress. And like a really proud father, he went to Isaiah and he said, Isaiah, Isaiah, guess what? Isaiah, tell the people, a baby is coming, and he's my son. And he's not going to just come for the people of Judah, but he's going to come for the people of all generations, for all time to heal all wounds. Isaiah, he's coming. And like a proud father, he just needed to let the gift out a little bit early. And as I hear these words, friends, they bring up such emotion in me because I know the rest of the story that this son Jesus was born and he is all of these things and he has been in my life. But to the hearers of these words in this time that they were spoken, they meant something entirely different. So I just want to briefly go back and I just want to give you a little bit of a context for when these words were spoken, these important titles of Jesus, because these names were spoken by the prophet Isaiah, who was a prophet, which means that he was a person that spoke for God, often about future events, and he spoke to the people of Judah, and he served several kings over the course of his lifetime, but the king that was on the throne at this time in Judah was King Ahaz. King Ahaz. 
Now, Judah had a problem. Judah had a problem, and that problem was the nation of Assyria. You'll notice there on the map, Assyria is to the north, mostly in that um, kind of purple region. Um, The Assyrian nation was big, they were powerful, they were wealthy, and they had just gotten a new king, and he was aggressive, and he was ready to conquer new lands, and he was ready to expand their territory. And guess who was close by? That little tiny brown spot. (laughs) That is Judah. And so several smaller nations were trying to get this King Ahaz of Judah to form an alliance against Assyria. The only problem for Ahaz was that if he didn't go in on this deal, he would surely be put to death. On the other hand, if he didn't join the group, they might rebel against him and kill him anyway. And so this was not a good plan for Ahaz. And the nation, they're starting to feel the stress and the strain of the pressure of Assyria. And instead of turning to God, King Ahaz buys off the Assyrian king for protection, which in the end makes Judah more vulnerable. And it is into this situation, it is into this climate that Isaiah is speaking these words. And he says, God isn't going to bring deliverance through war and bloodshed. He isn't going to bring deliverance through warriors and weapons, but through a child. And his name will be Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. The first thing that baby Jesus is called is Wonderful Counselor. Wonderful counselor. These two English words come from two Hebrew words, Pele Yoez. Pele, not the soccer player. But this word means beyond understanding. It means too wonderful for words. When Isaiah was going to describe the one day savior of the world, Jesus, he begins describing him by saying there aren't words to describe him. He uses a word that says, there are no words great enough to tell you just how awesome he is. He is too wonderful for words. Yoez is the word word translated as counselor, and it means to advise or to give counsel, to guide. One day, a savior will be born, a son will be born, a child will be given to us, and his name will be Pele Yoez. He will be the wonderful counselor. He is God in the flesh, the alpha and omega, the beginning and the end, and yet he knows you. And he cares about you. He knows exactly what you're going through. He is your wonderful counselor. And friends, I love how he's described in Hebrews chapter 4, 15 through 16, speaking of Jesus, he's called our high priest. And in Hebrews, it says this, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to do what? To sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he is without sin. Our high priest, our savior, our wonderful counselor, Jesus, he's been what we're going through. He's been tempted in every way that we're tempted, and yet he is without sin. He understands your pain. 
He understands your hurt. He has experienced life just as you have. That's why in verse 16 it says, let us approach the throne of grace with what? With confidence. With confidence that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Some of you right now, if you were honest, you would say the good news this morning is that there is one to help. And he is our wonderful counselor, our Pele Yoez. The second thing that God speaks over this baby is that he is a mighty God. We have a lot of words a lot of ways to describe might in our world, don't we? It brings to mind another word, and that is power. I remember last summer, we had just gotten a ton of rain over the course of the week, and our family went to Minnehaha Falls. And I remember staring at the falls and the rapids down below, and I remember Jacob saying, that's so powerful right? Or we see these wildfires out in California, and we're devastated by the destruction, but we're kind of in awe that we recognize that there's power in those flames. We might be watching a sport and see an athlete go for a tackle or kick a ball or swing for a home run, and we think they are powerful. We look at a nation and see a powerful leader or a mighty army. The Hebrew name for God in this title, Mighty God, is simply the word it denotes a mighty power but it's not just a power that can be captured by our human standards but it speaks to a power that can only be found in a deity therefore some have said it should be translated mighty mighty god mighty mighty god because his power requires two words to set it apart from the power that in our humanness we think about its power can only be found in God. Colossians 1, 16 and 17. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things are held together. Matthew 28, 18, Jesus declares, Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority on heaven and earth have been given to me. In other words, friends, this morning, God has supreme authority. He has all authority. So as we look at things in our world today that have authority, that might have power, it is only derived authority. It is only derived power because of a mighty God. Jeremiah is a prophet in the Old Testament, and he has this beautifully crafted scripture that talks about how great and how mighty God is. In Jeremiah 32, 17, and it's interesting because it starts with this word, ah. It's, it's not like, ah. It's like this guttural, ah, like he's just groaning under the weight of the world. Okay, so we're going to practice this together. Okay, we're going to say, ah, one, two, three. Ah! That, okay, <laughs> just like painful, right? My, my kids could do better than that. Okay, one, two, three. Ah! Right? Okay, so here's the verse. My boys did practice that with me. He says this, ah, sovereign Lord, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and your outstretched arm. And then he says this, 
Nothing is too hard for you. Friends, maybe you came to church today and you have problems. Maybe your marriage is a mess, let me tell you, nothing is too hard for God. Maybe you lost your job or your business is going under and you don't know where to turn. No matter how bad it looks, let me tell you, nothing is too hard for God. Maybe the doctor has given you some information about an illness. Let me tell you today, nothing, nothing, nothing is too hard for God. This third title, Everlasting Father, if the idea of a little baby being a mighty God is tricky, the prophet then throws us another curveball and gives Jesus the title of a father. Some have translated it father of the everlasting, which means that Jesus was in the past, is currently, and will be in the future acting as a father towards his people. Let me say it this way. If thinking about a mighty God tells us what God can do, thinking about him as our everlasting father shows you what he is willing to do. Let me say that again. If thinking about Jesus as our mighty God shows us what he can do, being our everlasting father shows us what he is willing to do. We look at Jesus, our everlasting father, often through the lens of our earthly father. And for many of us, when we do that, when we look through the lens of our earthly father, we just may see a father who's never satisfied. The words, I love you, or I'm proud of you, maybe they were elusive to you as a child. Like a carrot on a stick, you just couldn't get them, and your dad never said that, and somehow you just began to try to be perfect for dad. Because you so coveted his acceptance and his affirmation, but it was never there. And maybe your journey hasn't been like that. We all have our own story, but just for a second, we're invited to consider Jesus as our everlasting Father. And throughout Scripture, we see that this is how he reveals himself to us. I love in Psalm 103, it says, The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in love. You hear that? Compassionate, slow to anger, gracious, abounding in love. Friends, one of the most freeing moments, the most liberating moments I have ever experienced in my life is that moment when I came to the realization that there is nothing I can do. There is nothing I can do, not a single thing to try to work to earn God's love. And many of you, you are sitting here today and you've had to perform for other people. And you've performed because you didn't believe people accepted you for you. And you've taken that same approach into your relationship with God. And friends, you are working so hard. 
You are going to church and you are reading your Bible and you pray not because you're overwhelmed by the grace of God in your life, but because you feel like you have to do those things. Because deep down inside, God doesn't really accept you and love you for who you are. He says to those of us who are trying to perform to earn God's love, he says, come to me. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Rest. Rest for your weary souls. Maybe this Advent season, the way you celebrate is to enter the rest of God. Because it is in that rest that we experience God's goodness to us. And guess what? He meets us there. He meets us there. This last phrase is Prince of Peace. This last title prophetically given to the baby Jesus is Prince of Peace, or in Hebrew, Sar Shalom. Sar Shalom. That word Sar literally means the one in charge. My grandpa growing up used to always say to me, hey, hey, I'm in charge. We knew he was not in charge. (laughs) He liked to tell us that. It means the captain, the chief. It means the general. The Romans, they used to use that word Sar, and it became C-Z-A-R, Sar, like Julius Caesar. It was used about the one who was in charge, and so Jesus is the captain the chief, the Lord, the Sar Shalom. What does Shalom mean? Again, this is where translation becomes difficult because while peace, the absence of conflict, it doesn't totally cut it. Shalom isn't just about the absence of conflict, but it is about the very presence of God that brings with it a sense of wholeness and completeness. Shalom means rest. It means tranquility. Theologian Walter Brueggemann says that shalom is a persistent vision of joy and well-being. Shalom is the very dream of God that resists all of our tendencies to hostility and fear and drivenness. Jesus is the Sar Shalom. And so you could say he is the captain of rest. He is the Lord of tranquility. He is the chief of contentment. Jesus is the Sar Shalom. And as long as we are under Christ, friends, we can have his Shalom, his peace. He can give us a peace that most people don't understand. He is the Prince of Peace. Friends, as we wrap up this morning and as we celebrate communion together, this past week I was reading um, a blog put out by Sarah Bessie. Um, She is an author, a blogger. She is a self-proclaimed recovering know-it-all. And it just captured my attention as I thought about this Advent season. She said this, Many of us are wondering how could we possibly enter into Advent if we are paying attention to the world. You feel that this morning? How do we celebrate or get cozy or turn towards Christmas when our hearts are broken by serious refugees, by protests, by the impeachment proceedings, and by detention camps, by broken treaties, by one another? 
When in response to every crisis, our communities seem splintered and divided, even in how to bind up each other's wounds, and careless words are flung like rocks at our own glass houses. When perhaps we are lonely or bored or tired or sick or broke or afraid, when we are grieving and sad, in these days, she says, celebration can seem callous and uncaring, if not outright impossible. But here's the thing, we enter into Advent precisely because we are paying attention. It's because everything hurts that we prepare for Advent. It's because we have stood in hospital rooms and gravesides, empty churches and quiet bedrooms that we resolutely lay out our candles and our matches. We don't get to have hope without having grief. Hope dares to admit that not everything is as it should be. And so if we want to be hopeful, first we have to grieve. First, we have to see that something is broken and there is a reason for why we need hope to begin with. And Advent matters because it's our way of keeping our eyes and our hearts and our arms all wide open, even in the midst of our grief and our longing. Because the weary world is still waiting in so many ways, in so many hearts, in so many places for the fullness of the kingdom of God to come. 